0: Welcome to Art Holes. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who has no authority to speak on these topics. If you're new to the show, I'm glad you're giving it a shot. And here's the 30-second spiel. For more or less my entire life, I have had no interest in art. I knew a few artists by name and could identify a handful of stuff, like the David, the Mona Lisa. Other than that, didn't give a shit, and I just tuned it out. Instead of learning at a reasonable pace, I am now deep-diving one artist's life story at a time, and I'm taking you all with me. And because I care more about interesting people and stories, I'm only choosing artists who, let's just say there's quite a bit to talk about outside of their chosen profession, and a lot of these people are stone-cold disasters. If you're a returning listener, it's great to have you back. Uh, You know exactly what you're getting into, and I hope you're excited because this story is absolutely crazy. About midway through the series, there's an incredibly complex trial with potential life sentences in prison, and it is not for a thing that you could imagine. There's also an incident with artichokes that result in serious injury, but everybody in the story is a mess. Oh, and I want to address the gender issue up front. Uh, This is obviously the third male artist in a row that I'm covering, and there's a few reasons for that. I'm learning that throughout history, women have been kept out of the arts, uh, really, for a a pretty long time, so de facto, I'll likely be covering way more men than women, and I want to make sure that I space things out as best that I can. And also, uh, I'm a guy, and I don't know shit about art besides whichever artist that I'm covering, and I just started podcasting, so I wanted to get a little bit better at this before I cover a female artist's life. I don't want to be midway through a story and say some ignorant shit like, oh, and then when she was eight, she got really bossy. It's just not a good look, Uh, but I'm definitely covering a female artist's life within the next series or two. Right now, though, we need to dive into Caravaggio. Uh, Gotta be honest up front, before about a year ago, I had no idea who Caravaggio was. If I'd even heard his name at one point, it was lost in a sea of whiskey, bad movies, and similar-sounding Italian restaurants. My main sources for this series are Caravaggio, A Life by Helen Langdon, Caravaggio, A Life Sacred and Profane by Andrew Graham Dixon, uh, The History of Christianity by Owen Chadwick, The History of the Church and Art published by the Getty Museum here in LA, and The Bible. I think the version I used was the King James edition, which was published after Caravaggio died, but the portions we'll be discussing later in detail weren't significantly changed. Uh, At least, I don't think so. Uh, I also don't care, which brings me to my next point. This series is going to be dripping with Jesus and all of the Jesusy things that push Christianity both socio-politically and obviously artistically in Caravaggio's life. And I will be treating Christianity with the same irreverence and skepticism that I treat every topic except for dogs. It's not a shot at your religion individually. I think everybody's thing is not real. I'm happy for you and your faith. Deep down, part of me actually envies it, but it's just not happening here. Uh, So if that's not gonna work for you, I get it. You might wanna sit this one out. And if you don't, and later in the series, I giggle while talking about doubting Thomas fingering Jesus a spear hole, giving it the old swirl and waggle, and you get mad, that's on you because you kept going. I'll give you a few seconds to think it over. choice, my friend, because if tragedy plus time equals comedy, then Caravaggio's story is hilarious. I want to briefly talk about the sourcing generally for this series, then we're all done with housekeeping. We got a little spoiled with Jackson Pollock. Uh, A lot of the time there was so much detail that it felt like we were actually in the room. But Caravaggio's story begins in the 1500s, so there are gaps in information. Uh, There are going to be periods in the story where it's just, and then he went somewhere for eight months and we don't know what happened, and that's for a few reasons. First, it was the 1500s, between bad record-keeping, destruction of documentation, through centuries of war, and the utterly terrifying relentlessness of time, you're going to lose information over the years. And the second reason is, sometimes Caravaggio would just disappear for a while and nobody really knew what the hell was happening. The fact that we have the detailed information that we do is, let's call it a result of the life he led and the type of person he was. Which really is just fantastic news for entertainment purposes. If you're a return listener, you know how much I love context and looking at things from more of a 360-degree perspective, so we can't just hop back to the late 16th century and talk about Caravaggio's life. It was way too different of a world. We can't even say that Caravaggio was Italian. This is hundreds and hundreds of years before Italy became a country, let alone the country that's home to wine, shockingly tight pants-on-men, Vespas, my relatives, airport labor strikes fascist dictators speaking with your hands and pizza. People's motivations, social dynamics, how they viewed the world, everything was different. Copernicus didn't even publish his heliocentric model until 1543, and even then, people didn't really believe that shit until about 1700. We're mostly all idiots now, me especially, but back then, animals were constantly put on trial, everyone thought miniature people lived inside of sperm and evil spirits lived inside of brussels sprouts, and they thought babies couldn't feel pain. Let that last one really sink in. I cracked up until I was like, wait a minute, imagine what was done to babies with that misunderstanding. In order to properly set the stage for this absolutely insane story, we're going way back and we're going to build our world. We're going all the way back to roughly 40 weeks before the year one in the Middle East, tucked between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea in the village of Nazareth. We are smack in the middle of the height of the Roman Empire, which spread east from modern-day Spain, up from North Africa, and dominates all through the Mediterranean into modern-day Turkey. And our story begins with the conception of the Wee, Wee Baby Jesus. And whether or not the dates, the events, all of this early stuff is factually true, doesn't matter, because we're only tracking the development of Christianity as an organization, and people believed it was true. So we're going to go with it, and we're going to cruise through the life of Jesus, because most of you have at least heard this part before, and we only need the broad strokes. We start with a nice young Jewish girl named Mary, and a not-as-young Joseph of Nazareth, uh, who get married. And according to Jewish tradition, she was likely 12 or 13 years old at the time, which is already problematic. One day, God leaves it in a few strokes too long and gets Mary, who was a virgin and a child herself, pregnant. It was definitely God, it wasn't Joseph, and they didn't want to tell her family, and it definitely wasn't some other dude, and Mary didn't want to tell Joseph. Occam's razor, this was a miracle conception, and one might actually call it an immaculate conception if we didn't have to bottom line this as someone impregnating a child. Nine plus months later, on December 25th, Away in a manger, three wise men, frankincense and myrrh. There's donkeys and sheep and stuff, and the wee, wee baby Jesus is born. Here, eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant, so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. It wasn't actually December twenty-fifth, but we're going with it. It's a weird place to start splitting hairs, given the rest of the story. And for roughly 12 years, he's told he's the direct descendant of God and himself, a form of God, and that is not at all a traumatic thing to do to a child. A lot of their neighbors had problems with young Jesus because they thought he was a rambling crazy person, see Mark 3.21. And he generally annoyed the local Jewish leaders by being a little know-it-all, which makes sense because if you give your kid a God complex, he's going to act like he has a God complex. Jesus then disappears for a bunch of years. We sort of lose thread of the story. Nobody knows where it goes. Some people theorize he went east because some of his teachings had kind of a Buddhist feel to it. He comes back at 29 with a beard, long hair, washboard abs, and starts to teach about the one true God and his kingdom and sin or whatever throughout the southern part of what's modern-day Palestine and Jerusalem. As he travels and preaches, he gathers 12 rider die followers, the original disciples, and Mary Magdalene joins the group, and there's no evidence she was a repentant sex worker, despite what people say, and even if she was, who gives a shit? And they are just gathering converts. And all these stories are spreading through the area by word of mouth about this dope Jewish dude who's performing a bunch of miracles. He walks on water, turns water into wine, and there's something with bread and fish, and I guess he makes everybody a bunch of fish sandwiches. And this is all about to create some problems for the Romans. The official religion of Rome at the time was polytheistic. It more or less mirrored the Greek gods. There was the god of the sea, god of the underworld, god of war, and countless minor gods. There was even a god of door hinges. Her name was Cardea, and her story starts out as she's being raped by another god, Janus, who then made her the god of door hinges as, I guess, a form of payment. And it's a terrible story from beginning to end. Jewish people had been living in the area going back thousands of years, and they were sort of treated like garbage for most of their history, and that includes Rome at this point. They were a monotheistic religion, which I'm sure confused the Romans because then what about all the door hinges, and they tended to be blamed by Roman emperors when shit went wrong. But the presence of a Jewish population had always been status quo in Rome. The Romans were assholes to them, but there were no real surprises in the societal dynamic. But now you have a living Jewish person who started to become a rallying point, uh, a symbol. And not only that, this Jesus guy is teaching about the meek that will inherit the earth and the poor are the ones who are closest to God, a.k.a. Dad. And for Rome, which grew to an empire that made the world tremble through pride of financial success and power and upward mobility and wealth and grandeur, the notion of piousness through poverty is a little subversive. He's basically saying everything about what the Roman Empire stands for is not the will of dead. And there were a lot more poor people than rich people in the Roman Empire. And as a general rule, when the 90% finds out how much more powerful they are than the 10%, the rich start clutching their pearls. This all comes to a head when Jesus takes the crew and they roll into Jerusalem during Passover and his presence creates a stir. Jerusalem was the destination point for Jews during Passover, so now you have an entire city full of Jewish people at a time for celebration, and this new rock star guy shows up, the one who all the stories are about, and the Roman authorities bug out because they're worried he's going to cause a riot, and tensions are high, and he's annoying both the Roman authorities and the Jewish leadership who are like, who the fuck is this guy claiming to be the son of God and our king? and rumors are spreading that he's the one that's healing the sick, and there's a blind person in there somewhere. The powers that be in Jerusalem are not okay with this new guy riling up the poor, claiming to have visions of things, and he's saying he's the son of God, so word gets out that the authorities are looking for Jesus. One of the disciples, Judas, secretly snitches on Jesus on Wednesday, dimes him out, and then all the disciples, Jesus, everybody has the last supper. looks like a big magianos looking situation, and everybody's on that one side of the table. They all eat bread, which he says is his body, and drink wine, uh, which Jesus says is his blood, and whether that's a metaphor or not becomes really important later. And then Jesus gets arrested, and the disciples freak out, and they go underground before they get arrested too. He gets put on a few very short trials by the Sanhedrin, which was sort of like a Jewish court. Uh, He's tried for sorcery, threatening to destroy a Jewish temple, something about exorcism and demons, uh, claiming to be the son of God, and sedition against Rome. The trials do not go well for Jesus, and he's handed off to Pontius Pilate, who was the regional Roman governor at the time. The Romans whip him, uh, throw a crown of thorns on his head to mock his claim as the king of the Jews, and he carries the cross, and then he gets crucified. Hey, hey! Stop fucking with Korean Jesus. He ain't got time for your problems. He busy with Korean shit. He may be the most well-known recipient, but crucifixion wasn't unique to Jesus. It was a very common form of judicial execution. Jesus was one of countless others who the Romans crucified. It was used not only as a means of capital punishment, but also as a public warning to others. Because basically everyone had to watch a person be slowly tortured to death on their way to get groceries. It was like an advertisement for what happens if you step at a line. The most common causes of death, which usually took days, were suffocation as the big one, but also shock, a pulmonary embolism, and your heart beating so fast that it basically spasms into stopping. Alternatively, you could also die from sepsis from your wounds, or get eaten by animals, I'm guessing mostly birds. And that last one's got to be on the list of horrible ways to die. That sounds incredibly unpleasant. If you were lucky, somebody would stab you in the chest with a spear to really get things moving, uh, which they did to Jesus, and eventually he dies on a Sunday. It probably wasn't a Sunday, but we're going to go with it, and he was buried. And then the big miracle, his closer that sets off the entire religion. Jesus rises from the grave three days later, proving to everyone that he's the Son of God and also God. And then there's also uh, a Holy Spirit in there somewhere, but I never really got a grasp of how that all lines up. He hangs out for a bit, sees the old crew, scares the shit out of some people, which we'll talk about later, and then he says his goodbyes, drops the mic, and then floats up into the sky to go to heaven. So long, farewell, I'll read saying goodbye. I leave and heave a sigh and say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> now that Jesus is dead again, the big question is, what now? How is everyone supposed to carry on? Before Jesus flew into the sky, he told Peter, one of the 12 apostles, and it's still 12. uh, Judas got replaced because he snitched, but also because he hung himself. Jesus said that Peter, who was always the main apostle, he was the Diana Ross to the Supremes, uh, he would lead the others and they would spread out and teach everyone about Jesus. So now we've got a plan, and we also have what's considered to be the first pope in Peter, but everyone is still technically Jewish. For decades, really until the end of the first century, as Jesus' teachings were being spread, they were considered the Christian sect of Judaism. And that sect of Judaism grows incredibly quickly because, and this continues to be important all the way through the series, this is a religion that speaks to and is about the hopeless. It's telling people that even when there is literally nothing left in their life, if they just have faith, their soul is protected and they will spend an eternity in heaven, which is a very strong sales pitch. Until you consider what it would be really like to be aware of time, but exist outside of time, the whole eternity thing, and it really is sort of terrifying. This Christian sect really started to pull away from Judaism around 50 AD, but the first major indicator that Christians were seen by everybody else as being separate from the Jews didn't happen until July of 64 AD. That year there was an enormous fire in Rome that started in the marketplace near the Circus Maximus Arena, and it ripped through the tightly packed and highly flammable structures and then onto blocks of apartments. After six days of incredible fires and opportunistic looting, ten of Rome's fourteen districts were annihilated. Rumors immediately spread that the Emperor Nero either started the fire to clear out some of the poor areas, or he let it engulf the city by doing nothing. Uh, This is the story of him playing the lyre and singing, just having a self-care day while Rome burned. But no matter what the story actually was, Nero was immediately tagged as the bad guy. So he had to deflect that shit ASAP, and he jumped at the chance to blame these new people called Christians, who were eating flesh and drinking blood and poor people are freaking out. Given how new this group was and how seemingly weird to everyone their beliefs were, in contrast to the culture of Roman grandeur, they were the perfect scapegoats. And a lot of the documentation of this comes from the Roman senator and historian Tacitus, who survived the fire and lived in Rome his whole life. His story seems to be pretty widely accepted, and it dovetails with other writings, and he's even a dick when describing the Christians, so it's probably not propaganda created by the Christians and attributed to him. Tacitus's histories are also one of the documents people point to to say that a guy named Jesus probably did exist, at least historically. And historically, you could even look at this entire story as being just about a dope Jewish dude who wanted us to be nice to each other, not be dickheads to poor people, and maybe have a little empathy to fellow humans. But that just wasn't good enough, and everyone had to turn him into a symbol and a god and kill on his behalf and create an organization around him with kid-touching practically written into the mandate. And this is the—we just cannot have nice things. And this is the part uh, Nero's blaming Christians for the great fire of Rome. Uh, It began the first pretty intense volley of Christian persecutions, and uh, this, this gets pretty rough. He would cover Christians with fresh animal skins and sick hungry dogs on them, he would crucify them, he would force them to fight lions and leopards and boars in the gladiator arena, and Christians were also, quote, doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination. Of course, this had the complete opposite effect in Romans saw Nero's treatment of Christians as asymmetrical and barbaric. And the concept of asymmetrical barbarism tends to trigger a few things in people. One, empathy. Only sociopaths don't have empathy for someone wearing stage one of a leather jacket and then getting eaten by dogs. And two, skepticism. If these Christian people are so crazy, what are you so afraid of? Just let them do their crazy shit. Instead, all Nero did long term was create martyrs. And martyrdom becomes an ongoing theme for Christianity, including that dude Peter, who was the first pope, and it almost becomes a barometer of how committed to Jesus you are and used for marketing purposes. Christian leaders were able to point to martyrs and say, look, they got turned into human street lamps because they believed so much. What are you willing to do for Jesus? It better not be a pancake breakfast, because that's not going to cut it. For the next few hundred years, Christianity exploded within the Roman Empire. It appealed to everyone who was never treated equally in Rome. Women, slaves, the poor, anyone who enjoys a pancake breakfast... And the persecution of Christians continued in Rome, but it wasn't this widespread empire edict that sometimes portrayed. Christians would be killed and churches destroyed, but it was more local pockets of persecution that would pop up and fade away over time, just like the Roman persecutions of any other minority group. Sometimes when a pope would get a little out of order, Rome would have to send a message. Uh, one pope had an anchor tied around his neck and was thrown into the sea, and another pope got condemned to work the Sardinian mines on an island somewhere until he died. But violent pope deaths weren't exactly a fluke, especially with early popes. Of the first 31 popes, 28 were killed, usually from beheadings, crucifixions, or starving them to death. And on top of that, there is a consistently bloody trail of succession over the centuries. John VIII was poisoned and clubbed to death. Stephen VI was strangled. Leo V, strangled. John X was smothered with a pillow. And John XII was murdered in bed by the husband of a woman he was in bed with and I could go on and on. So I'm gonna. Benedict VI was strangled, John XIV was allowed to die from purposeful starvation and neglect, Uh, Clement II was poisoned, Celestine V was maybe murdered after he retired, and Pope Boniface VIII died a month after he was severely beaten. Within those first few centuries of Christianity, besides Pope murder, you begin to see the beginnings of what's considered paleo-Christian art. The only surviving Christian art from back then really starts from around the mid-2nd century on, probably due to all the early Roman repressions. A lot of the art would be used as a storytelling device. It would depict rudimentary scenes of Jesus' life, like the miracles everyone said he committed, the fish sandwiches and whatnot. It was often pictures alongside early Christian writings, almost like a comic book setup, and there were also frescoes, which was a new term for me. A fresco is when you paint directly on plaster, usually right onto buildings. You use water and mix it with a dry, powdery pigment, and the water and powder mix bonds to the plaster itself, and as it dries, the painting becomes part of the structure. Frescoes became a more public and permanent display of Jesus' story told within art. You could burn a painting or manuscript, but Romans would have to destroy parts of whole buildings to destroy this art, and they still did that, but at least it made them work harder and there'd be witnesses. This was all a relatively stable, yet uncool status quo until the year 302 A.D., Rome at this point had devolved and split into the Western Roman Empire and Eastern Roman Empire with two co-emperors. In 302, the emperors Diocletian and Maximilian and their sort of vice-emperors Galerius and Constantius decided these Christians were a threat to the Roman Empire. This is when the pearl clutching comes in. The only real debate within the emperor's circles was whether or not Christians should just have all legal rights removed or whether or not they should be exterminated. It started with the first edict on February 23rd, 303, as an attempt at a peaceful burning of Christian texts and taking away legal rights, and then it escalated quickly. Because Christians didn't just lie down and let it happen, they fought back and resisted, so local judges then started executing Christians against orders for not complying with the edict, and they burned a bunch of people alive. Which, of course, led to rebellions over the executions, and then a bunch more edicts were put in place to quash the rebellion, and it spun out of control. From 302 until 311, it was not a pretty time for Christians until an Edict of Tolerance was finally put into place in 311 in order to stop the persecutions. My guess is all the torture and death and turning people into street lamps got a little out of hand and Roman leaders realized it was having the opposite effect, just like Nero and the fire. After the Edict of Tolerance was put in place, Christianity came back even stronger because now it was an entire religion of martyrs and they were converting a sizable percentage of the people in the Roman Empire. So much so that in February of the year 313, co-emperors Constantine I and Licinius signed the Edict of Milan, which gave freedom to all religions, including Christianity. And the Christian aspect of the Edict of Milan was implicitly more important because Constantine himself had converted to Christianity in 312. He wasn't baptized until years later, but he was already a convert. There's debate about whether his conversion was a political power play to appease a growing constituency or if he was actually into Jesus, but from a historical perspective, I don't think it really matters. You now have not only an equal religion, but one of the most powerful leaders in Rome is Christian. That was the ultimate get. The year 312 was also a tipping point for Christian art. People no longer needed to hide it or risk it being destroyed, so much more Christian art remains from this point forward. Constantine didn't just convert to Christianity. He was an active Christian emperor. It was a driving force for how he ruled. He convened the first Christian council, the Council of Nicaea, which was a meeting of religious leaders. They were supposed to put some structure around Christianity, establish some canon law, clarify the whole Jesus-God connection thing for everybody. Basically, it's the church getting its story straight. It's also the council where they formalized the word Catholic as an acceptable name. So we can now call the organization the Catholic Church. And now that they had an organization, it almost immediately began to splinter. There are almost never unanimous agreements in these ecumenical councils, and people tend to get pretty heated about even little issues. So pretty early on, you get disagreements that result in the establishment of Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity, which just happens to follow the political, geographical, and cultural divide of the Western and Eastern Roman empires. Then in the year 380, the Roman Emperor Theodosius I declared that the Nicene version of Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. Theodosius said that any other Christians besides Nicene Christians were, quote, foolish madmen. They went from being fed to dogs to the official religion of the Roman Empire in under 400 years, which is kind of impressive. They've got their Bible, which is the Old Testament they took from Judaism, and they added the New Testament, which is about Jesus. The New Testament is basically the Gospels or stories of a few of the 12 disciples that survived and also fit the narrative. And also a bunch of letters from a disciple named Paul. Paul wasn't his actual name. Everybody just calls him Paul now. Also, the first Pope Peter's name wasn't actually Peter. It was closer to Simeon or Simon, but I promised myself I wouldn't get mad about names in this series. Why nitpick on that? The more pressing concern is you started your religion off stuff that a guy named Paul told you. Once Christianity entered the social, financial, and political power structures in Europe within the Roman Empire, everybody unpacked their bags because they were not going anywhere. The church begins to get rich, uh, slowly at first, gotta collect those donations, and one of the things that gets donated a lot to the church through estate gifts was land. And with money donations, the church begins to buy more land, so the church is becoming an influential landlord in Europe too. With Eastern and Western Rome being weaker divided, the pre French and Germanic people from Gaul swooped down and slapped Western Rome around through the 400s until it fell in September 476. So now we have this weird mess of a continent for the next few hundred years. The Eastern Roman Empire survived as the Byzantine Empire, and its major religion was Eastern Orthodox Christianity. The Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church had a similar setup that Western and Eastern Rome did, only theirs survived the fall of Rome. They didn't bother each other as long as they could agree on a few major key points, and they would form a tighter alliance against any outsiders. Again, my personal opinion as not an expert, uh, because Eastern Christianity was much smaller and was expanding East, they weren't an immediate rival to the power struggle over the Mediterranean, so no need to make more enemies than required. The staying power of what we can now call the Roman Catholic Church, I would argue at this point, has transcended any secular authorities in Europe. No matter who overthrows who, Christianity was there to stay. And you now have this new secular power in Europe that was created after the Celtic Gauls came through, and it was later called the Holy Roman Empire, and they further cemented Christianity within Europe. Again, just like before, this happened so quickly and so thoroughly that in 781, Charlemagne codified an entire region that the Roman Catholic Church would independently and sovereignly rule, and it was called the Papal States in northern Italy. So now the church is not only one of the larger private landlords in Europe, but now it has its own sovereign authority. Western Europe is now solidly a Catholic stronghold, the churches operating parallel to and intertwined with the secular powers, a kings are deposing popes, and the churches behind-the-scenes driving secular decisions. And even when the Holy Roman Empire segments out into little separate kingdoms under one macro-umbrella, Germany, Italy, Bohemia, and Burgundy in the late 900s, early 1000s, the church remains not only intact, but thrives. No matter what was going on with the power-grabby infighting of predominantly white Christian Europe, there was one thing that would be able to galvanize everyone to find common ground. People with darker skin pigment who prayed to somebody else. There had been smaller, church-backed crusades within the new Christian kingdoms, but it's the crusades against Muslims that coordinates Christian Europe to band together and fight because it's protecting the homeland from the perceived other. And when discussing the Crusades, I know I'm giving zero background on the evolution of Islam and caliphates in the Middle East, and by doing so, I'm sort of implicitly presenting them as the other as well. But for our purposes, I feel like it's really a different side of the same coin. There's a development dogmatically, infighting, spreading through territorial acquisitions and conversions, and from an outsider's perspective, you could argue it broadly parallels the enmeshing of Christianity within the secular powers of Europe. And also, maybe the Crusades for both parties was also about land acquisition under the pretense of being on God's behalf. So for the Christians, it was also a push for new territory and new people to convert and tell all about the fish sandwiches. So this whole thing really kicks off at a time when Eastern Christians and the Catholic Church are having their biggest spat with some stupid east-west schism in 1054, and the predominantly Muslim Turks started to migrate westward. So, Pope Urban II freaks out at this new invading horde of scary brown others. And he tells Christian militaries and Christian secular powers that it's their holy duty to go east through Byzantium and protect the Eastern Christians from the evil Muslim invaders. And for that sacrifice of potentially losing your family, life, and land in the defense of Jesus, you could obtain these little things called plenary indulgences. I think the best way to explain plenary indulgences are their little invisible sin-forgiveness tokens you can get from the church if you risk your life for other Christians. It's saying certain sins deserve to be wiped away because you are for commitment to Jesus. But also there's a bunch of land and holy sites under Muslim control that the church wanted to get their hands on, so help out with that and they'll wipe away your sins. This, of course, results in Christians fighting Muslims, people on pikes, more people burning, everybody's an asshole, it's awful, and taking sides or placing blame here is really absurd. Who did what to who is sort of a straw man argument at this point. Everybody was fighting for land and for money and they used their fates as swords and shields. The Crusades continue on and off for centuries and war is almost always profitable and patriotism is infused with religious fervor and church art explodes. Art becomes not only a display of wealth and societal skill, but a means for marketing your religion and helping to keep everyone active and engaged the further you get away from the epicenter of its territories. It keeps everyone connected under the same ideals. And as the money rolled in, Catholic churches were built taller and more ornate with Gothic cathedral architecture in the 1200s. Paintings and stained glass art would help tell Bible stories, and frescoes painted on the walls and ceilings were becoming more common and more complex. And I do have to say this about the church as it got wealthy. It would be irresponsible to not acknowledge how many poor and starving the church saved with its wealth. The church saved untold numbers of lives with its charity. They fed and clothed a lot of people who had nothing, and I think that caused a little bit of moral licensing. I I think the thinking was they were saving so many people physically and spiritually. Maybe let's buy that expensive set of sheets this time. And then those little allowances started to build on one another. And with all of this wealth and influence, Christian Europe was about to be challenged again with the emergence of a new empire east of Byzantium, the Ottoman Empire. We then get a whole new series of Christian and Muslim wars between the Ottoman Empire and European Christian powers in the middle 1400s. So there is just a white noise of religious conflict happening at this point. And under this constant fog of war, Christianity starts to head down a bit of a spiral. They're getting sort of coke-bingey on plenary indulgences. By this point, the Renaissance was occurring in Europe, uh, starting towards the end of the 13th century, mostly around northern Italy, where the church's power structure was. And it was during the Renaissance that people really started to show a greater interest in things outside of the church, more like humanistic pursuits. Things like science, non-religious art and music, and Greek antiquity came back into vogue, and the church let this new stuff slide. Because as people were getting smarter with science and math and what the church undoubtedly called wizard potions and devilry, they were also getting a lot richer, and so was the church. One of the church's new major sources of wealth were plenary indulgences, those sin forgiveness tokens. What used to be given out for acts of valor or sacrifice on behalf of the church and Jesus can now be purchased. They're not even trying to have a cover story at this point. They want it straight up their nose, and they don't care that it's in the middle of the day at a restaurant. It is now a money-for-sin's economy at this point, and it's because wars are extremely expensive, and so are absurdly ornate cathedrals, and none of that stuff pays for itself. Basically, they are now in a a $50-a-day investment banker coke habit territory, but with plenary indulgences. The church's bullshit explanation was, by giving money to the church, you're allowing the church to grow and project its greatness and more easily spread the word of God. So the more you give, the more souls they can save. Another argument someone could make is that the regional cardinals also wanted enormous estates to live in, have a staff of servants, only the best food and wine, and a questionably aged harp player, and that shit isn't free. So money becomes the priority for the church in order to maintain its infrastructure, the lifestyles of its leadership, and the constant holy wars. And to get that $50, and maybe another 50 for tomorrow, but just in case, the church turned to incredibly rich old-money families in Europe, especially northern Italy. Then these absurdly rich families bought and influenced their way into high-level positions within secular monarchies and the church's leadership, and that power and influence grew exponentially because of bananas-level nepotism. You had the Colonna family, who had cardinals and princes and a pope in their family tree, and then the Medici show up too, and they're powered by a bank, and they start to influence the entire continent. For the Catholic Church, which started as a religion that pitied the rich because they were poor in spirit, this whole game was now about gaudily flaunting its wealth. If you could visualize the Catholic Church, the Church of Jesus as a person, it used to be that one homeless person who stands out amongst peers as being visibly more awash in problems, and that is not a joke, that was literally the religion. It is now wearing a ridiculous Steve Harvey suit, throwing 50s at the valet to keep the car close, and just doing key bumps in the bathroom before trying to sleep with his boss at the office holiday party, and the spiral is not even close to being over. Because once you set up a situation where money is exchanged for a piece of paper that represents not a real thing, there is day-to-day operational fraud on top of the obvious existential and spiritual fraud. There'd be times when the church said it never got its money when it really did, and on the other side, there was an entire black market for fake indulgence documents to avoid actually paying the church for things to not be a sin. And the church got pissed about that one because the church doesn't have a $50 a day habit anymore. The church needs $200 and it wants its money and it wants it now. You know, I think you've the wrong impression about me. I think in all fairness, I should explain to you exactly what it is that I do. For instance, tomorrow morning I'll get up nice and early, take a walk down over to the bank and walk in and see you. And uh, if you don't have my money for me, I'll crack your fucking head wide open in front of everybody in the bank. Eventually the scheme evolved and the church started sending out professional partners to drum up indulgence cash for individual projects like building specific cathedrals and cities. Basically the Catholic church was selling municipal bonds for Jesus and the rate of return was not going to hell I guess and then they took the god munis and put them on a plate and cut them up into fat lines and just <sighs> Ugh, fuck But we're not at rock bottom yet. First, we have to turn the entire situation into a giant pyramid scheme. Local church leaders started striking deals with the professional partners, and they were taking a cut of the indulgence sales, sort of acting like brokers. And those local leaders would have to give their bosses a cut, who gave their bosses a cut, and once you get accustomed to a certain stream of income, it is tough to lose. You could argue the church at that point was operating like an organized crime syndicate. I I wouldn't make that argument, but some irresponsible person could make that argument. We finally hit rock bottom on this coke bender when indulgences got oddly specific both in sin forgiveness and use of funds. It's almost like they were making shit up to be a sin just to tax it so it wouldn't be a sin anymore. The Catholic Church decided that eating butter during Lent was deemed to be a sin against God, but they also really wanted to put up an absurd monstrosity of a tower in the ruined cathedral in Normandy. So the church found a solution. If a Catholic had a spare six denier turnois coins and they donated them towards the building of that tower, then they could eat butter during Lent without going to hell. They got so much money from people wanting to eat butter during Lent because butter is goddamn delicious that a tower went up in the ruined cathedral that was so ridiculous it actually fucked up the facade of the building. And that tower to this day is still referred to as the Butter Tower. This entire religion is flying off the rails and its leadership is not helping. They went from Peter, the first pope, who was destitute and ultimately murdered for his beliefs, to Pope Alexander VI, who had a bunch of kids with several mistresses and was accused of widespread nepotism and financial mismanagement, and he maybe poisoned the guy. The Catholic Church went from fish sandwiches to butter towers, and for roughly 1,500 years, everybody had been along for the ride. There were some attempts at splinter sects and breakaway groups, but they were stamped out or just faded away, and the Catholic Church, arguably the longest-running consolidated power in Europe, has largely stayed intact. But a lot of people didn't like what the Church had become. They didn't like that the rich, like the Colonna's and the Medicis, could buy their souls with plenary indulgences while the poor were just as fucked as ever, and they don't even get Lent butter now. This idea of salvation through the highest bidder especially annoyed a German theologian, priest, and local church bureaucrat named Martin Luther. In 1516, then-Pope Leo X sent one of those papal indulgence dealers named Johann Tetzel to Germany to sell indulgences for construction on St. Peter's Basilica. And Pope Leo X was not that much better than Alexander VI. He was a devout hedonist, and he killed and imprisoned rivals, and maybe vetoed a church rule that would restrict the number of young boys a cardinal was allowed to keep around. The local German archbishop was a guy named Albrecht von Brandenburg, who happened to be in debt up to his eyeballs, and he agreed to broker the indulgence sales to the public for a 50% cut of whatever Tetzel brought in. When Martin Luther got wind of that, he checked out, and he wrote an incredibly risky letter that contained a list of grievances to von Brandenburg in 1517. Quote, Disputation of Martin Luther on the power and efficacy of indulgences, which would be later called his 95 Theses. He complained about indulgences not only being unfair to the poor, but also regionally biased because the French and Germans used butter in cooking way more than the Spanish, Italians, and Papal States who used more olive oil. But the 95 Theses were about more than just indulgences. He also had serious theological concerns about weird shit the church had just sort of made up and kept yes-anding over the years. He didn't like that the church invented the concept of purgatory where they didn't have answers to tough questions like what happens to a baby if it dies before being baptized? And the church goes, yeah, 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 uh, it's purgatory. It's sort of like that line outside a club, only it's full of dead babies. And that's it. They just sort of wait there. No one knows for what, but I'm sure it's a one-baby-in, one-baby-out policy. Or the bread and the wine thing from the Last Supper. The Catholic Church said unequivocally the bread was Jesus' actual body and the wine was his actual blood. The obvious hurdle the church had to get over was that was absolutely fucking ridiculous. So they said the bread and the wine were transubstantiated into the actual body and blood when it was blessed by a priest. So Martin Luther said, cool, but transubstantiation is a made-up fucking word, and you made it up for a really weird reason. Let's just say Jesus was speaking in metaphors, go high-five some poor people and then get some fish sandwiches. The problem the church had that it didn't really realize yet was that Martin Luther zeroed in on a lot of concerns that Catholics had for a long time, and he didn't nail his 95 theses to the door, that's bullshit, but he did have the benefit of a recent technological development, the Gutenberg printing press. The printing press completely changed our ability to disseminate information. Instead of copying things by hand, which took forever and led to mistakes, you could mass-produce identical documents using print blocks and ink. So with the help of the Gutenberg Press, Martin Luther's 95 Theses had spread across Europe in about two months. People's minds were blown that this guy could so carefully and politely question the church, but still tap into all the obvious problems surrounding what the institution had become. And because this story isn't short on irony, Martin Luther became a symbol himself. He now has the backing of anyone who's ever had questions. Theological students loved him, the poor loved him, and really anybody who thought the transubstantiation thing was absolute nonsense. And people thought it was really time to talk about that one, especially because the blood and the body thing being real and the transubstantiation, that wasn't even actual early dogma. The church made it up at the Fourth Council of the Lateran in the year 1215. Eventually, this Martin Luther issue got so big that it made it up to our boy, Pope Leo X, the hedonist murderer, and he had to get involved. He sent a bunch of papal cops after Martin Luther, and they eventually charged him with treason in 1518. After that, Martin Luther had a weird trial, got excommunicated in 1520, and his 95 theses were banned. But the church didn't have enough muscle to destroy his writings and quell this uprising as quickly as it wanted, so it delegated that task to local secular authorities, which was not a smart move. When people have legitimate questions about butter towers and a weird line outside of a club for taken-from-us-too-soon babies, which I guess is all babies, really, unless there's like a super-evil baby out there somewhere... But when people have those questions, you can't excommunicate the messenger, ban the book, and crack down on supporters using secular powers just to maintain your wealth and position. Catholicism was doing the exact same thing the Romans did to them, because as a species, we perpetually fail to learn from history. And what do you know, by 1526, Martin Luther had converted so many people with his ideas that he was ironing out the logistics on his own church. When a large section of the church broke off, that meant a lot less political and social influence where Martin Luther's ideas had taken hold, and that also meant way less money coming in. And we know how the church feels about money. So as what later would be called the Protestant Reformation tore through Europe, the Catholic Church started their own push, the Counter-Reformation, beginning formally with the Council of Trent that started in 1545 and lasted until 1563. The Council of Trent was sort of a combination of a reaffirmation of the Catholic Church's beliefs and consolidation of power and authority, and they also cleaned up some of the concerns that Martin Luther identified, like the abuse of indulgences. But the real goal here was to set up a bunch of rules for the Church to figure out how to smoke out early future potential Martin Luthers. So the decrees that came out of the Council of Trent kick-started a period of a much more militant and pious era of Christianity. And it was everything from what was allowed or not allowed in Catholic art, which we will get into much more next episode, to the proper ways to pray. But most importantly, if you're going to get much more serious about rules, you have to be more serious about finding people who break them, which is where we get the Inquisitions. We were going to get to the Inquisitions eventually. The Inquisitions in Europe actually started very slowly in the 1200s through the 1400s to root out fake Christians. This was primarily Muslims and Jews who were forced to convert to Christianity because there was no real way to function in that society not being a Christian. And also maybe because they were minority groups who were easy to pick on and there was a little bit of bigotry happening. But during the Counter-Reformation, the Inquisitions exploded... The papal decree given to Spain to root out heretics had now expanded to include Protestants, and the use of torture to obtain heresy confessions by papal inquisitors skyrocketed, and they got really, really creative. To determine if you were bullshitting about being a Christian or moving against the church, you might get the strapado, which is having your hands tied behind your back, and then you were lifted up and hung by your wrists until your shoulders were ripped out of their sockets backwards. There was waterboarding, which simulated drowning, uh, slowly pulling people apart by their limbs as they lay in a rack, or just setting them on fire like the good old days. You could also be placed butthole first on top of this pointy pyramid platform called a Judas Cradle until your body weight pushes the pyramid, Well, well, you get it. And just for fun, they might tie you up and attach a sharp double-sided fork between your chin, like the underneath side of your chin and your chest. And then if you started to fall asleep, or just couldn't hold your head up anymore, you'd keep piercing the flesh on both sides. It didn't kill you, it just hurt like shit for days on end and deprived you of sleep. Or sometimes the papal inquisitors would slowly tear you apart piece by piece with red hot pincers. Countless people were tortured to death in attempts to root out heretics, and we don't know exactly how many because a lot of the torture happened locally where records weren't as good. The Spanish Inquisitions led to the Portuguese Inquisitions, which eventually spread throughout both of their colonial territories in the Americas. A lot of people went butthole first onto that pyramid seat, but those Inquisitions were conducted by secular powers with just a general papal allowance for inquiries, so it gave the church plausible deniability for the widespread butthole trauma. The Roman Inquisitions within the papal States, however, were also part of the Counter-Reformation, and the church couldn’t deny responsibility for the roughly 1,200 people who were executed, but nor did it really care to because the church did what it wanted. And I know that part was rough and a lot to process, so as a little bit of a palate cleanser, here’s a bunch of dogs saying, "I love you.") Oh, no. And that's the power of dogs right there. That can really wash away the stench of hundreds of years of torture. But crackdowns during the Counter-Reformation weren't just butthole related. The church also lashed out at any ideas they thought could be a threat. Uh, They denounced Copernicus and banned his on the revolution of the heavenly spheres, and they cracked down on religious art. For a religion that was not unfamiliar with violence, this was becoming a period of not fucking around. In addition to the battles the Church was fighting within Europe, they were about to be involved in one of the most crucial battles in European history, the Battle of Lepanto. The European powers in the Ottoman Empire had been fighting for quite a while now, and as much as this was about Christianity and Islam, it was also about controlling the Mediterranean Sea and strategic lands. The Mediterranean is one of the most fought-over areas on Earth. It's a warm, navigable sea with a coastal geography that is great for ports, and it provides countless trade routes from northern Africa, Europe, the Middle East, the Balkans, and through Asia. The Ottoman Empire had recently captured Constantinople, which bridges the Black Sea with the Mediterranean and was one of the most important cities in the world, and that only increased their strength. And with this massive force, the Ottomans pushed west with help of a navy of 272 huge galley ships in the Gulf of Patras under the command of Ulu Chali. When the European powers found out about the navy, they freaked out because they were so fractured that there was no way they could beat the Ottomans individually. So Philip II of Spain, who considered himself to be the, quote, Most Catholic King and Pope Pius V led fast and high-level negotiations across Europe, and they established the Holy League, which was sort of like an early iteration of a NATO allegiance. And the Holy League was comprised of the Papal States, Spanish Empire, Republic of Venice, Republic of Genoa, the Grand Duchies, which were sort of like mini sovereign kingdoms, of Tuscany, Savoy, Urbino, and a bunch of Catholic orders of knights. And we're going to get into Catholic orders of knights in the last episode. They're sort of a combination of the military, prison, and priesthood. It's very confusing. The navy was led by John of Austria, who was the illegitimate son of Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire and half-brother of King Philip of Spain. And his principal commander was a guy named Mark Antonio Colonna, who led the papal fleet. The Colonna family was. If there was a major Catholic or secular power struggle in Europe in the Middle Ages, the Kelownas were usually in there somewhere, especially in northern Italy. That one pope, Pope Boniface VIII, that died a month after getting his ass kicked? That whole thing started when Schiara Colonna led an army to demand his resignation, and Boniface said he'd sooner die, so Colonna slapped him in the face, and then everybody just beat the tar out of this poor old man. The Colonas were Pope-slapping powerful. That's how long ago this was, bizarre this world was, and how influential these families could be. With 212 ships that had new technology, mostly provided by the Republic of Venice, the Holy League fleet sailed the Mediterranean in the name of the only thing that bound them all together, their love of Jesus and fear of brown people. The Holy League of the Ottoman Empire met in the Gulf of Patras on October 7, 1571 near the town of Lepanto. The battle was absolutely brutal, because the ships back then were massive rowing ships. They had some cannons, but this was mostly hand-to-hand combat on enormous floating battle platforms. Almost 29,000 soldiers and 40,000 sailors from the Holy League met the Ottoman force of almost 32,000 soldiers and 50,000 sailors. And there was unmatched naval bloodshed in what would end up being the largest water battle since antiquity. Whether it was the technological advantages, the shift in winds that helped the Christian ships enter positions faster, or better military strategies, the Holy League decimated the Ottomans. While the Holy League lost around 10,000 men and only 13 ships, the Ottomans lost 230 ships and 40,000 of their men were killed that day, mostly in hand-to-hand fighting. That is 40,000 people slaughtered in a day in a near-complete wipeout of their navy. It wasn't obvious immediately after, but the Battle of Lepanto would be a tipping point in Ottoman expansion moving forward, and the Ottoman Empire would never really be the same until its collapse. This battle was such a moral victory for Christianity as a whole that even the Protestants celebrated it. James VI, the Protestant King of Scotland, wrote an epic poem to celebrate the victory, even though he called John of Austria a quote, foreign papist bastard. When Mark Antonio Colonna returned to Rome, he was celebrated as a hero. He rode through the streets on a white horse and people lost their minds. And then he did something that was reflective of the piousness of the Counter-Reformation. In front of all of those crowds, he switched out his armor and put on shoddy rags for clothing and left on a religious pilgrimage to pray to the Virgin Mary for being blessed in battle, and everyone just gushed at his modesty before Jesus and Mary. The Colonas were now titans of the Counter-Reformation, and anyone within their sphere of influence would reap the benefits of their power. Mark Antonio had also taken steps to use strategic marriages to solidify the family's power and influence. He married off his daughter, Costanza Colonna, to Francisco Sforza, from another powerful family in Italy, who was the Marchese, which is sort of like the Duke of Caravaggio, which was a small city about 25 miles or 42 kilometers west of Milan. Costanza was 13 at the time of the marriage, which is gross, and she hated being married so much that she threatened to kill herself. She didn't, and the Marchese and Marchessa of Caravaggio were incredibly powerful and influential in northern Italy, especially when Costanza could leverage the fame and power of her father, Marc Antonio. But our story begins a few months after the Battle of Lepanto. It begins in that small town of Caravaggio on January 14, 1571, at the wedding of Fermo Morisi, a local stonemason, and Lucia Aratori. Everything about this wedding would suggest it was a nondescript wedding between an artisan and his young bride, except for the fact that it was attended by Francesco Sforza. The presence of the Marchese of Caravaggio at the Marisi wedding would be a hint at the connection between the seemingly unextraordinary Marisi family and the immensely powerful Colonas. And it's this connection and relationship that would help enable a significant amount of shenanigans and random acts of violence that happen in this story. Because Fermo Morisi and Lucia Aratori would come to have a son they would name Michelangelo. And Michelangelo Morisi would grow up and eventually be known to the world by the name of his hometown, Caravaggio. So when we pick up our story next episode and meet the Morisis, this is the world we'll be living in. The world that we couldn't just jump into. It's a time of extreme piousness where the definition of church and state is often blurred and is controlled by a religion whose history is drenched with blood and butter. And there is also a bunch of stuff about testicles in this story. I am dead serious. We are gonna be talking about balls a lot. There's even a moment when we find out how much a testicle is worth by law if you cut one off a guy. So tune in to next episode to dig into the life of Caravaggio. We are going to meet an artist who is both a product of his time and really a standout performer in both the best and worst that time had to offer. Oh, and I'm going to be putting up a couple of pictures on Instagram for this episode so you can get a sense of how Catholic art evolved. And I'm also going to try to find some sort of political map of Europe and northern Italy from around this time in case you want to get a geographic orientation of who's in charge of what regions. And that's at Artholes podcast. All right, that's it. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you get a chance and want to give back, uh, please rate and review the show and whatever podcast app you're using. Uh, it really does help get the word out. And uh, take care, everybody. And I will talk to you next episode.